Well, good morning. Welcome, especially if you're new. If you're new, my name's Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And last week in Exodus chapter 2, where we left off, we saw that the people of Israel had cried out to God in their misery, and God had seen what was happening. In fact, God heard, God saw, God remembered his covenant, and God knew their misery. And so he set out to act. And what he did is he went and he found Moses who was off in the wilderness and he appeared to him in a burning bush and he gave Moses this call on his life. And he called Moses. He said, I want you to lead my people of Israel out of Egypt into the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And you would think that Moses, having heard God, having seen this burning bush, having had an audible voice, would have been so excited. He would have just dropped everything and bolted to Egypt to be able to tell them the good news of what God was going to do. That's what you would have expected. But it's not what happened. Rather, Moses had a bunch of questions for God, and and he began to engage God in this incredible conversation. And and in the section we're going to look at today in in Exodus chapter 3, we see two of these questions that Moses puts to God, and they lead to one of the most profound passages in the entire Scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me. Exodus chapter 3 beginning in verse 11, and this is right after God has put a call on Moses' life to set his people free, to lead them out of of Egypt. Here's what happens next, verse 11. But, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he, God, said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The very first thing after this calling on Moses' life is that Moses says, but, but God, I'm not sure that I'm the right guy to do this. God, I'm not sure that, that, that I am the one who you should do this. I, I've already tried. And you remember, it was a bust. I mean, it was an utter failure. And I don't think it can be done. And if it can be done, it's certainly not me. You, you got the wrong guy. And it's fascinating to see God's response. God doesn't give Moses a pep talk. God doesn't say, no, Moses, you can do this. I know you can do this. You you just dig a little deeper. You just try a little harder. You you go again and and you can do it. It's not not God's response because God knows. Moses knows. In fact, we know that Moses was a failure. He he couldn't do it. It wasn't possible. He, He couldn't do it in his own strength. So it's not what God says. But look at what God says instead. God simply ignores his question, and he says this, I will go with you. Moses, this is not about you. This is not going to be something in your own strength. I am going to do it through you. And then he adds this, I'm going to give you a sign, Moses. There will come a day when you stand back on this same mountain that we're on right now, in this desolate wilderness, and there will be tons of people, your people, my people, the people of Israel, that you through me, have led out of the land of Egypt. And when they come here, you remember our conversation and you will know that it was not you who did this, but it was me who did this through you. And see, this is a principle that runs all through the scriptures and we touched on it last week. God has a calling on your life and on mine and it's to see people set free from their bondage and slavery to sin. But it's not us who's going to do it. It's Jesus who's going to do it. But he uses us. He works through us to see that happen in people's lives. And we talked again about this being a corporate calling. This isn't you have to do the whole thing yourself. This is us 
the people of God, the, the church who has been called to do this. But it means that you have a particular, a unique calling that God has called you to play a role in that, to play a part in that. And God has that calling on your life. But often when that calling comes on your life, the, the answer we get is like, God, but, but me? I mean, God, I'm so busy. Isn't there someone else? Or, or God, there's, surely there's someone more gifted, more capable than me to do this. Well, God, you know I tried this in the past. I mean, I wanted to do this, but God, you know I've failed. It, it, I mean, I've spent all this time kind of in the wilderness afterwards. Surely not me. And yet, and yet God comes and he says, uh, he, he doesn't come and say, oh, oh, you could do it if you just try harder. God doesn't say, you know, you just, you just give her again and I, you give it all your strength and it'll happen. No, no, God comes to us too and he says, no, no, I will go with you. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to make it happen. And, and you just think about that for a minute. God is going to go with you. God himself is going to work it through you. But he wants to do it through you. In his wisdom, by his grace, in his unfathomable wisdom, he said, you are the one that I want to accomplish this particular thing through. Certainly is what God says to Moses. Which leads Moses to his next question. This is what he says then in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And now, now he's saying, look, God, who is it that I'm supposed to tell them is, is doing this in my life? Who, who is this God who is going to come with me? Who is this God who is going to work through me? Who is, who is this God who is going to lead his people out of Israel? Really, the question he's asking is this, who are you, God? It's incredibly important, incredibly profound question. You know, a number of years ago, I had the privilege to uh, go with a friend of mine to an AA meeting where he was receiving his cake. Now, to receive a cake is, a, is like a, a celebration of a number of years of sobriety. In this case, I think it was about three years of sobriety. And it's a big celebration. And he said, would you come and just... Just be part of this celebration. And I was more than honored to go. And I remember coming to this little room and, and just sitting around. And there was all these different people. And, and, you know, just amazed to see the different walks of life, the different places that people are, are working through their sobriety. And, and man, that evening was powerful. It was brilliant. It was beautiful. I mean, these guys just went around the table and everyone took a turn just encouraging this guy and, and telling funny stories and speaking, you know, goodness into his life. And then his sponsor got up and presented him with a, with a chip. It was like a little coin, a, a memorial saying, three years already of, of being sober and, and just keep going. It was beautiful. But at one point in that evening, we walked through, they read through the 12 steps. And, and step number one in, in the 12-step program is to admit that you're powerless uh, to overcome the alcohol in your life. And step two is to believe that there is a power greater than yourself that will give you the strength to overcome the, the, the alcoholism, to find sanity in your life. But then we came to step three. And step three is this, is to make a decision to give your will and your life over to the care of God. But then in italics, they added, and it said this, God as you define him to be. And I remember as just a number of people around that room defined their higher power as they thought that power should be. And you know, it broke my heart. It broke my heart to hear the kind of places, the, the gods that they were looking to for the kind of strength that they needed to defeat the demon of alcoholism in their life. And it was so far and so distant from, 
who God is. And I mean, I wanted to, man, I just wanted to say like, no, 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 let me, let me tell you about a God who loves you so much and, and who can grant you the power to save you not only from your alcoholism, but from, from your sins and, and give you life. But of course, I was a guest there. It wasn't the appropriate time or the appropriate place. But I was amazed at, at the kind of gods that people would make in their own image. And in fact, it's not just at an AA meeting. I mean, I've experienced this in conversations with people, uh, all, you know, regularly. People who say, well, I think God is like this or that based purely on their own opinion. I mean, people say, I, I just don't think that God would send people to hell because they're sinners. And others who say, well, if there is a God, I'm sure that he will let me into heaven because I've been a, a, a good person. And all kinds of other statements like that, sometimes even from Christians. And it always strikes me as a little bit odd, a little bit odd that in every other area of life, people expect somebody to reveal to them, to tell them, to explain to them the truth about things. But when it comes to God, they think that just their own opinion is legitimate and right. You know, my son is uh, studying chemistry. We're talking about the periodic table. Now imagine if somebody who knew chemistry said to me, there's 118 elements of the periodic table. And I looked at him and said, no, no, no. I think there's 68. And then I looked at him and said, in fact, you know all those little categories, different categories? I don't think it matters. All the elements are exactly the same anyway. And, and chemistry doesn't happen the way you think it should. It really happens the way I think I should. I mean, they'd look at me like I'd lost my mind. They'd be like, what, what do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You don't get to decide how many elements there are. It's been discovered. It's been revealed over time. And, and how chemistry works, it doesn't matter what you think. The fact is it works this way you're out of your mind to talk like that. And the same is true when it comes to God. So many people think that they can find God whoever and however they want. But the fact of the matter is, it is God who reveals himself to us. And, and that's what Moses is asking here. God is saying, Moses is saying to God, who are you, God? Reveal yourself to me. And this is how God replies. Look, look at what he says in, in verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses asked God, who are you? What is your name? And God answers and God says, this is my name. He says, my name is I am. In Hebrew, the, the God's name is Yahweh, which is built on the Hebrew word or the Hebrew verb I am, to, you know, to be. And, and, and all throughout the Bible, wherever you see God's formal name, Yahweh, it's written actually like this in small caps. It's written like this, Lord. Lord, all caps, but the smaller caps. Now, it's written this way because God's name was held in such high esteem with such high reverence in the Old Testament that they didn't want, to, one, didn't want to mispronounce or misspell God's name. And so they used this, the word Lord, to represent his name. But it means that it's not just a title. In other places in the Bible, if you see the word Lord, small caps, that's a title. That's like saying sir. But in the Bible, when you see Lord printed this way, that's God's formal name. That, that means Yahweh. That means I am. 
In God's name, Lord, it, it, it appears over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. 6,800 times that the Bible in the Old Testament refers to God by his formal given name. By the name Yahweh, I am. Which means it's pretty important. Which means that we should understand what God is saying when he says, my name is I am. What, what does that mean? And in fact, Above all, it means that God is utterly unique and that he is absolute reality. But, it, but that, there's huge implications for that. The theologian, Pastor John Piper, draws out a number of those implications, and I want to share them with you. First of all, God's name, I am, reveals that he is an absolute being, which means that he never had a beginning. God never had a beginning, which is hard for us to wrap our minds around if you think about it, and yet it's the fact. Every kid asks their parent, like, you know, Mommy, Daddy, where, where did God come from? And the answer is God never came from anywhere. God has always been. He's always existed. Which secondly means that God will never end. The one who never has a beginning can never end. He, he can't go out of being because he is an absolute being. He is what is. There is no place to go outside of God. There is only God. That, that's all. Before he creates, that's all there is. Just God, which thirdly also means that he is the absolute reality. There are no other realities outside of God except for those which he has created. And, and, and he's not, you know, he's not one of many realities. He is simply there. He is all that was there eternally. Outside of God, there's no space, no time, no emptiness. Only God existed until he created things. Fourth, that means that God is utterly independent. There is no one who counsels God, who leads God, who causes God to exist, who supports God, or makes him what he is. Which therefore means that everything that does exist is utterly and ultimately dependent upon God, including this vast universe that we live in. Because the universe is secondary, it is dependent upon him. And its very existence depends upon God's ongoing will that it continues to exist. Which sixthly, sixth means that, that God's, sorry, six, God's absolute being means that all of the universe is nothing compared to God. Nothing compared to God. God, the ultimate reality in the universe, is the contingent reality based upon, dependent upon the ultimate reality, means that the universe is like a, like a shadow compared to the substance, is, is like, is like a, an, an echo compared to a thunderclap, is like a, is like a bubble compared to the ocean. I mean, all of the universe, the grandeur, the greatness of it all is nothing compared to the majesty and the glory and the, and the, the greatness of the great I am. And seventhly, God's name also means that God is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. There is no law book to which God looks to know what is right. There is no Google to establish facts. There, there is no association or academy that helps him determine what is right and beautiful and, and lovely and excellent. He himself is the, is the standard of all that is right and true and beautiful. And finally, God is the most important, most valuable reality in the universe. There is nothing more worthy of our interest, of our attention, of our, of our admiration and enjoy, enjoyment than the reality of who 
God is. That's what God means by his name. That's who the great I am is. It takes a little bit for us to wrap our head around that, but that's what God communicates. But that's not all. God, God goes on to continue to reveal himself further. At the end of verse 15 again, he says this. He says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In other words, God is constant. God never changes. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't, you know, uh, grow. There's no development in God. There's no progress in God because he is absolutely perfect. There's no place to grow or to develop. He is all that there is. Which means that the God who appealed to Moses in the burning bush is the same God who speaks to us today. The God, the God who ruled in Moses' day is the God who rules today. He doesn't change when Jesus came on the scene. He didn't somehow become, you know, a little bit more chill and relaxed. He isn't adjusting to the culture that we live in today and saying, well, I just, I kind of got to get with the times. That's not who God is. God never changes, which is important because our circumstances, our culture, the, the world we live in is vastly, profoundly different than the world that Moses lived in. I mean, if Moses were to show up here today, he couldn't find the bus stop if he wanted to. In fact, he wouldn't even know what a bus is. I mean, the circumstances are so different. And people say, well, you know, the Bible, I mean, that's a different time, a different place, a different culture. It doesn't really apply today. But the fact of the matter is, it's not about the circumstances. The circumstances and and all of that can be totally different. What matters is it's the same God that spoke to Moses is the same God that works in our lives today. Prophet Isaiah writes this, All flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of, the God, of our God will stand forever. You know, we change our minds all the time. In my household, we change our minds sometimes three times in five minutes. But not, not, not God. And therefore, also not his word. The promises in his word. The demands that he lays out. The, the statements of purpose. The words of warning that are written to us as followers of Jesus. They don't change. They're not relics of the past. Rather, they're a revelation of the mind of God so that we might know who he is and what he calls us to do and how he calls us to live. That's who God is. The great I am is always the I am. He is the unchanging God of all creation. And then God goes on to reveal something next in verses 16 and 17. He says this to Moses. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. Literally, I have watched carefully what's happening for you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. As we talked about last week, God sees the affliction of his people and he cares deeply. He, he says, I'm, I notice and I'm going to take action. Later, later in, in, in Exodus, Moses is back at the Mount Sinai where this, is, this conversation is taking place. Only this time, as God promised, he's there with all of the people of Israel. And God says to him, I want to talk to you, Moses. I want you to come up on the mountain, just you. And, and there it says this, Exodus 34, 5. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the great I am, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's what else we see about God. God is compassionate. God is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He is faithful. His steadfast love in all that he does. You know, in the ancient world, all of the so-called gods were capricious. They were demanding. They had all these people just to serve them, just to, to meet their needs. But not the I am. Not God himself. He, he has compassion and he sees his people and he cares for them. And he sets out to save them. He's a God who saves. That's who God is. And then in verse 18 and 19, he goes on to say this. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel should go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Even before they go to the king of Egypt, God knows what Pharaoh will say. He knows how Pharaoh will respond. He knows what he's going to do because God knows everything. He knows he, he, there's nothing that he doesn't already know, that he isn't already aware of. Again, the, the scriptures teach us this. The, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the psalmist, he sees this at work in his own life. This is what he says. You have searched me, Lord, you have, you, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God, Yahweh, the great I am, knows everything. He knows you. He knew you even as you were being knit together in your mother's womb. And he knows every day of your life. He knows what you're going to say before the word is even on your tongue. That's who God is. And then God goes on to say this, again, revealing more about who he is. In verse 20, he says, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all of the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he, Pharaoh, We'll let you go. Again, God tells Moses what's going to happen. He says, Moses, it doesn't matter how great Pharaoh is. It doesn't matter how powerful he is. It doesn't matter how big his army or how vast his resources, how stubborn he is, how often he refuses to let you go. In the end, Moses, Pharaoh will do what I say he will do because I am the sovereign God over all creation. I am all powerful. Again, what we know about God is that he does whatever he pleases. There are no constraints on him. Nothing that can hinder him from doing what it is that he sets out to do. You know, too often today we make God too small. We, we emphasize the fact that God is a personal God, that he is a, a God in relationship with us, all of which is true. But it means that sometimes we under underestimate, we, we don't focus enough on his majesty and his glory and his ultimate authority over all of creation. J.I. Packer uh, writes this about the church today. He says this, we are poles apart from our, uh, from our evangelical forefathers at this point, even when we confess our faith in their words. When you start reading Martin Luther or Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield, through, though 
your doctrine may be theirs, you soon find yourself wondering whether you have any acquaintance at all with the mighty God with whom they knew so intimately. Isaiah 40 was written to a people whose mood was not unlike that of many Christians today. They were, they were despondent. They were deeply worried. They were secretly in despair of, of whether God was still at work in the world around them. They, they, they looked at the tide of history that seemed to be going against them. And they kind, of, they kind of doubted whether God could do much anymore. Much like some Christians feel today. Like as if Christianity is on the decline and there's not much that's going to happen to change that. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, begins to reason with these people. He begins to point out to them, to ask them questions. He begins in verse 12 saying this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? God says to the people, look, look around you. Who has done what I have done? Who is able to do what I am able to do? He, he wants to know, are you wise enough? Are you mighty enough? He asks, can you do this? And the answer, of course, is no. God says, I am. I'm able to do these things. And then he says, look at the nations. Look at the great nations that seemed so powerful in that day, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. He says, you stand in awe of them. You, you're in fear of them because of their mighty armies, their, their vast resources. But God says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. He says, God, God says, you, you tremble before these nations because you think they have such power over you. And yet the question is, who uses these nations to accomplish his will and purposes? Who is sovereign over the nations? And God's answer is, I am. And then he says, look bigger, look, look at the world. I mean, consider the vast billions of people who live in the world and the incredible complexity and variety in the world, the empires and the cultures that throb and, and flow throughout history. Look at all of those and again, consider that they're nothing in my sight. He writes this, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The world and the universe, it dwarfs us. And yet God dwarfs it. The world is simply his footstool. And he has utter authority over it. He says, who is greater than the world? Who, who is it that, uh, who, uh, sorry, who is greater than the world and all that is in it? And again, the answer that God gives us is, I am. And he says, look at the world's great leaders. Look at, look at the, the presidents and rulers whose laws and policies seem to determine the lives of millions. Think of people like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great and Napoleon and Hitler. I mean, think of the leaders of our own day, people like Biden and Putin and, and even our own prime minister. You, do you suppose, do you think that the great leaders of our day are actually setting the course of world history? Again, listen to what God says. Yahweh brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Who is able to do this? God says, I am. And then finally he says, look, look at the ultimate picture of greatness. Look at the stars. I mean, it's a universal human thing. If you get in some dark place and you look up at the skies and see the vast 
array of stars that are up there. The incredible galaxies are up there. And, and as you know, because of our, of our knowledge these days, the universe is expanding at an incredibly rapid rate, billions upon billions of stars. And this is what it says. It's what God says. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might? And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. It's God who brings the stars out. It's God who is their maker and God who is their master. And it's God who has all of them in his hands. Again, this is who God is. Too often in our world, we make our problems much too big and our God way too small. We need to know God is sovereign over it all. This is what we see here again in this passage. And then finally, again, at the end of this passage, God reveals one more thing to us. In verse 21, he says this, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go out, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Now God says at the end, he says, the people of Israel have worked in slavery without pay for many generations. And now before I lead them out of the land of Egypt, I'm going to ensure that they get paid for their work. You're going to plunder the Egyptians and they're going to give you the gold and their silver in payment for all that is done. And here again, we see one of God's characteristics, that he is a just God. That he sees that justice is done. Sometimes it's done in the moment. Sometimes it isn't done until much later. In this case, God says, justice will be done before my people leave the, people, the land of Egypt and, and head towards the promised land. See, this is who God is. This is what we, we see revealed about God in this section of Scripture. And it comes out of these questions that Moses asks, God, who are you? And my question for you is this. My question is this. How well do you know your God? Is this the God that you are serving? Is this who, who you are, are following? A God who is absolute in every way, who never changes, who is filled with compassion and love and care, who knows all things, who is sovereign over all, who seeks justice, who sees that justice is done? Or is your God some, some flimsy version of Yahweh, some shadow of the true God? Is the God that you have in your life sort of a pick-and-choose buffet of what you think God should be like and what you hope God is, and then the rest you leave on the table because it's not really the what you want? Because, you see, this is who God really is. This is the God that really is in control of all of creation. And it's important that you know who God is in all of his fullness. And there are a number of reasons why that's the case. You know, if you know, if you really know, if you truly understand who God is, it gives you incredible boldness and courage. You remember Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I mean, they lived in a foreign culture, in a land that was dead set against all that God wanted to do and, or, or that God had called people to do. And they actually served in the king of one of the most pagan kings of that time. And yet, because they knew God, because they knew who their God really was. Not only were they able to live differently than the world around them, but they were actually able to have quite an impact within that world that they found themselves in. And Daniel, he writes this. He says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. 
The same is true today. If you know God, if you really know who God is, and not just some parts, a little bit here and a little there, if you understand who God is, you can stand firm and take action. Live differently in the world around you and have this incredible impact on the world because you know who God is. But then secondly, if you know God, man, it leads leads to such contentment and peace in your life. Because because when you understand that the God of all creation, this powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God has you written on his hands, engraved on his hands, that that he loves you and cares for you and and is watching for you, that his eyes are never off you, man, that that gives you a a peace and a hope in this world you don't get anywhere else. The great uh, 19th century uh, preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he writes this. He says, oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as devout musings upon the subject of the Godhead. Knowing God brings a deep peace and contentment into our life. And finally, if you know God, if you really know God, then you live a life filled with grace because you understand that this great God, this awesome, holy, incredibly powerful God chose you. He chose you in spite of your sin, in spite of your brokenness, in spite of the stupid and dumb things that we have all done. And he says, I want you. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to walk with you in this life. And in that, there is great grace. And out of that should flow worship and love and obedience because of who God is. You know, this fall, we've been talking about going deeper in our relationship with God, of building that foundation that is solid so when the winds come and the rains fall and the storm batters your house, that it stands firm. And the question is this, who is your God? How well do you know your God? I mean, are are there areas of God, of his character, that you simply don't know, that, that you are ignoring or that you've minimized? Are there areas of God's character that you need to understand more fully and more deeply? You see, the Word of God isn't just about what happened and then this happened and that happened. It isn't just instructions about how to live. Ultimately, behind it and under it all, it is revealing to us the very character of who God is. And so as you read, maybe you need to look again and say, I'm going to look more carefully for God's sovereignty. I'm going to look more carefully for the fact that God knows all of life. I'm going to look more carefully for these elements of God's personality and of of who he is that I just need to grow and learn and understand. Because if you don't know God, then your world can become way easily swayed by the things that happen around you. But if you know him, you have this firm foundation. And for some of you, you don't know God. You've never come to a place of knowing God. Or maybe you realize right now that the God you thought you know is not the God who is really revealed. And I want you to know that today you can know God. You can know this great God personally in your life. There's this story of Jesus as told in the New Testament. Jesus is having this argument with these Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And they're going back and forth. And and at one point Jesus says, look, Abraham would have been glad to have seen my day. In fact, he has seen me. And they kind of look at him like, 
what did this guy just say? And they say, you're, only, you're not even 50 years old. How could you possibly know Abraham? And Jesus makes this most profound statement. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And in that moment, in that moment, the religious leaders, they reach down to grab stones to begin to, to, to stone Jesus to death because in that moment, Jesus had committed the ultimate blasphemy. He had said that he was God. He had said that standing before them in the flesh was none other than the great I am himself present among his people. And yet that's who Jesus is. That's who he he was. God himself in the flesh, walking among his people, come to suffer and to die, to take his our sins upon himself, that we might have a relationship with God, that we might know the great I am, that he might come into our lives. And, and that can happen simply by putting our trust in him, by putting our faith in him, and allowing what he did for us to, to, to pay the price for our sins. And you know, if you do that, you begin this incredible journey, this lifelong journey of knowing God and learning who he is. And, and God comes and he promises that he will be with us. Think about that. Imagine what that means. Yahweh, the great I am, will be with us in this journey we walk through life. That doesn't mean it's always easy. It doesn't mean that, that there aren't challenges along the way. But it means that God will be there through it all. And there is nothing like that kind of a life. There is nothing that gives ultimately that kind of richness and hopefulness and meaning in our life. In knowing and being known by God. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray with me. Right now, you, you don't have to pray out loud because God, as we just said, knows everything. You just pray quietly in your heart. Would you bow your heads? Let's all bow our heads. And let me pray for you. This is, what, this is what you pray. God, God, I want to know you. I want you in my life. And God, I, I acknowledge that I am a, a sinner. I'm someone who has not walked according to your ways, according to what you want. And I, I understand that Jesus came, God himself in the flesh, and paid the price for my sins. And God, I want to accept his payment on my behalf. And God, I put my trust in Jesus. I put my trust in you. And I want to follow after you all the days of my life. I want to know you, God. I want to know the life that you have to give, the, the, the hope and the assurance and the confidence and the boldness and the grace that comes from knowing you. And so, God, I invite you into my life today. And I give my life to follow you. You know, if you prayed that prayer, God will come into your life. God, the great I am, will come and know you. And now, now let, me pray for, let me pray for all of us. God, sometimes we make you so small. Sometimes we put you in this little box or, or make you this sort of buffet that we pick and choose. And God, forgive us for that. God, help us to see you in the light of your majesty, in the light of your glory, in the light of who you are. And God, may we walk in light of that. God, may we live knowing who you are. And Father, where we need to grow in that, would you please help us? We thank you that we can call you Father and that you walk with us every step of the way. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.